All right, we have a quiz that is due today, due to be done by the end of the day, actually 6 o'clock tomorrow. So that is up and available again through then will be if you've waited because we're covering the rest of the chapter, we should be through the rest of chapter 3 today. First article review is also due on, is due, or is not also due, is due on Friday. Not also due today, that would really be scary, right? Be even scarier put up exam 2 today, right? Um, and, but the first article review is due on Friday. Again, a couple people have turned it in already through the D2L Dropbox, which is fine. And you do not need to turn the article in that you're using. If you're using one of mine, just reference which article you're using. You know, by title is fine. If you're using something that's not one of the ones I provided for you, make sure you tell me the title, the author, the dates. You know, give me a reference to it so I can go find it if I need to see whether it's a good one. You know, if it's a web one, you can use a web link, although again, be careful with those iTunes Quiz 1 is up and available now. I think I told you it wasn't going to be on Friday until the end of the week. I went ahead since I was using it for my online classes and they get it available today. I just put it up for everybody. It was easier than switching the dates around. So it doesn't change when it's due. You still have through next Monday to do it. But it's up there now. You can take that anytime. Pictures included are everything from the 20th of August, the first day of class, through last Friday. When you take it, it'll pick a random set of 12 of those pictures and ask you a question about it. And ask you to do 12, do 12 of those and it'll pick, pick those out. Um, it gives you, I've actually put it up to give you three tries on that one. It's going to give you different pictures each time, but if you're not happy with your first grade, if you get seven on the first one and you want to take it again, it won't hurt you to take the second one. It takes your highest grade of the three. So you can go through it three times if you want. It'll give you, again, different sets of questions, so it's not like you can go through the first time and look, oh, I know the answers to these now. Well, it might pick you out 12 completely different ones the next time. But you'll have that chance to go through and, and look at them again, or if you're not happy with your grade, or if you are happy with your grade and you just want to try it again, if you get a 10 and an 11, hey, you can still go for a 12 on the last one because if you get a 2, it's not going to hurt you. It doesn't average them. It doesn't so take your first one. It takes the highest of the grades that you get. So you've got three tries to go through on those. Homework three, due next week, which I was going to bring today, and I completely forgot to print it out this morning. I was busy making sure I got through everybody's observations, the ones who submitted them online that I didn't look at over the weekend. So it's up on D2L if you want it. I will bring copies of it, on paper copies, on Wednesday for you. So if you really want to get a jump on it the next two days, it's there and available. You can get it. If not, I will bring it in on Wednesday, and you'll have a copy. And then quiz three is coming up on the end of the following week, which for us covers chapters four through eight and nine. Four through eight is sort of one unit for us. That's the solar system. And we're going to breeze through those five chapters. So you don't want to sit there. Don't, don't try to read all five chapters in detail. We're not going to go through all that information. Look at the slides that I give you. That's sort of the high points that I'm trying to hit in five I'm trying to condense five chapters down to what we'd normally cover for one chapter. So when I say quiz chapter 4 through 8 or when that ends up on an exam, which is probably coming right behind this, we're probably ready, about ready for the second exam coming up there. 4 through 8 is one unit for us. So when you look at the quiz, 4 through 8 will be half the questions. Chapter 9 will be half the questions. It's not overly way. So again, look at the PowerPoints that I give you on that. Don't get tied up with the fact that it's five chapters. Don't sit there and try to read them all in great detail. Skim them. So. But that's just a part of the course, even for the stellar astronomy courses that we're supposed to cover the planetary side. So I've got to go through the planetary 
really, really quickly on it. Questions? No, no, nope. All righty. Picture of the day for today. Beautiful picture, actually. A solar filament erupting. Chapter 9 is the sun. So once we get through the planets, we'll actually talk about the sun in a little bit more detail. A solar filament is sort of a, when you see it, when you look in the atmosphere of the sun, it'll look as a dark area against the bright surface of the sun. Not quite like a sunspot or a large filament that actually stretches across the surface. And we see that in some of the, um, some of the parts when we look at the upper solar atmosphere. And it's material that's gotten confined by the sun's magnetic field and is trapped there. Well, it's not trapped forever. It does, can escape. And in this case, a solar filament. And you may have heard of a prominence too. Ever heard of a prominence? Prominence is the same. Actually, a filament and a prominence are the same thing. It just depends on how you're seeing them. If you're looking straight down at the surface of the sun, you'll see a darker area, a darker band that is a filament. We call a filament. If you look at it at the edge, you might see it as a prominence, a little loop going up over. That's exactly the same thing. It just depends on where you're seeing it on the sun. But when you get to more intense things like a solar flare, or in this case a coronal mass ejection, sometimes that filament can break free and actually expands out into space. So you're actually, the sun is actually throwing material, high energy particles, electrons, protons, out into space at very high speeds. You don't want to be in the way of it. Right? That's a lot of high energy particles. That can cause a lot of damage. We're protected on Earth, mostly, by our magnetic field. Because when the sun sends those particles off, our magnetic field buffers them, kind of funnels them down and around the magnetic field towards the poles of the Earth, the magnetic poles. And that gets the, causes the aurora. Right? The higher energy, the more energy particles, the lower visible on the Earth's surface the aurora will be. So typically when you see pictures of the aurora, you're looking at pictures from Alaska. You're looking at pictures from northern Canada. You're looking at pictures from Scandinavia or northern Siberia, you know, all the very high north areas in the, on the globe. Or you're looking at pictures very low, very far south, you know, way down towards Antarctica. But when you get inten very intense areas, these will come lower and lower. And you'll see some when something like this comes and strikes the Earth, you'll find times where you can see the aurora in Pennsylvania. It's visible, it would be visible here. Get a nice clear night, you'd actually be able to see, you know, the dancing glow, greenish glow of the aurora. And more intense ones you can see further south. Last year we had some that were visible down in the southern part of the US that you could see in Georgia and Alabama. Very far south for where you don't normally see an aurora, not a thing you're used to seeing. There was a very intense coronal mass ejection back in the 1850s where aurora were actually a point, uh, reported in Hawaii. You're getting pretty far south there. You're getting down close to the equator. You're only 20 some degrees above the equator. So you're getting down very, very far south. That takes a lot of energy. And there is a lot of energy tied up in one of these eruptions. You know, we think about all the energy we go through in a day and how much, how much that is. Give it a second. There we go. How much energy, you know, we use in a single day on Earth. Well, if we could capture one of these solar flares, just capture all the energy incorporated with it. And it may be one of your homework problems. I can't remember if I gave it to this class or the other one, but usually one of the classes gets a homework problem to calculate how long will that last you. If you could capture all that energy, would it last you for a day, a week, a month, a year? You know, how much energy is there? Was it, was it 103 I did it? Are you, are you, okay, you don't remember doing it? Okay, maybe it's this class then that you'll get it. 
it's, it's hundreds of thousands of years. That's not just the power, you know, how much, that's just how much power could power the, is it the United States, I think I do? You know, power the entire United States, all the energy we use, you know, not just for today and tomorrow and the next day, but for the next several hundred thousand years. That's how much energy is built up in one of these and contained in one of these very large flares, very large mass ejections. And they can also can cause problems. We get the beautiful aurora, but if you get one streaming through and smashing into the earth as well, well, charged particles, you know, electronics and charged particles don't get along very well. You know, very high energy charged particles. So you could, you could get a satellite disrupted. Communications could be disrupted. Um, all communications, the power grids and things could actually be affected by a large one of these hitting the, hitting the earth. Now, of course, Sun's very big. Earth's this little teeny tiny thing orbiting. We looked at that the first day of class, right? You know, you've got the sun, the sun was the ball and the earth was way down at the end of the hall someplace, this little tiny bead. But if it comes in the right direction, you know, real bad if the earth happens to be off in this direction. If the earth's up here, who cares? It's not going anywhere near us. We're not going to see it. But that could cause you know, major disruptions. The one that I mentioned that occurred in the 1850s uh, disrupted the telegraphs at the time. You know, started fires in the electrical wires because of that intensity of energy coming all of, all of a sudden from the sun. You know, what would it do today? It's a good question. Don't, don't really want to find out because you know, disrupting all of our cell phones and electronics and internet that you depend on today would be a very major, major thing. But these are going to happen more and more frequently over the coming year. The sun is reaching its peak and apparently has not, re has not reached it yet, but is expected to over the next about year, year, year and a half, to actually reach a peak of activity when we see more and more things like this. So, very pretty picture. I thought, almost thought it was a drawing when I first looked at it, which was, is it Saturday? Saturdays or Sundays was actually a sketch someone made of one of the, of some astronomical objects. I thought it was another drawing all of a sudden, but. Apparently not. Actually, actually, a picture from the Solar Dynamics Observatory. Questions before we talk about more telescopes? No? Alrighty. We were looking at radio telescopes. And I finished up here. We were looking at the Arecibo radio telescope, which is the largest radio telescope in existence. It is 300 meters across. So, again, one football field, two football fields, three football fields across the, across the center, center of that. It's a very large telescope. It's not tiltable. You can't turn it to steer it to point at any specific object like you could with the telescope that we'd looked at previously. On the previous slide, we'd had a telescope that looked like a big satellite dish, but you could turn it. If I wanted to look at the object over here, I could. If I wanted to turn back and look at an object over here, you can adjust where you're looking. You can't do that with the Arecibo. It can only look straight overhead. So objects that don't pass close to straight overhead would not be visible from it. Would not be visible. It can't observe everything, but what it can observe, it's got the biggest collecting area of any radio telescope in existence, 300 meters across. And again, compare that to the big telescopes we were talking about on Earth, big optical telescopes were 10 meters, 12 meters, 14 meters. You know, big, but you know, how many of those could you fit on this thing? It's a monster. 
Now, a couple things about radio astronomy. One of the, the big disadvantage is that if you remember the, resol the resolution, did I do the resolution? I did talk about resolving power, but resolving power depended on the size of the telescope. So how fine detail you could see depended on, again, the size of the telescope. So it depended on the diameter was in the denominator, right? So the bigger the telescope got you better resolving power. Well, heck, you got a 300 meter telescope. You should be getting very good resolving power. What belongs up on top here is actually, really, is the wavelength. So we can use the Greek letter lambda, like an upside down Y, means wavelength. So, yeah, the diameters are much bigger. You've got 300 meters instead of 10 or 12 meters. But your wavelengths go from being, you know, 500 nanometers to things like 6 centimeters in size. A big, big difference. This is an incredibly tiny wavelength, very, very small number making the resolving power much better. When you're talking about something that is this many times bigger, you know, centimeter is a hundredth of a meter, nanometer is a billionth of a meter. So 500 billionths of a meter is an incredibly small number compared to six centimeters. And you could even look at longer wavelengths than this in the radio. So a big problem with optical, with radio astronomy, is that you don't get as good resolution. You may have those great big telescopes, but you need them to even begin to get close to seeing the detail. So radio telescopes, the very early one, were good at seeing generally what's there. There's, a, there's some source there, but it was a source in a big area, and it couldn't resolve to detail as to what it was made up of, how it looked, or how it was spread out in that area. You only knew that there was some intense radio source in that area. Now. That said, there are some big advantages too. Big advantages of radio astronomy, first of all, it doesn't have to worry about the sun as much as you worry about in optical astronomy. So radio telescopes are working right now in this part of the country. You have radio telescopes that are observing right now. Doesn't matter. The sky is not bright in radio waves the way it is in visible light. Light from the sun in the atmosphere spreads out and blurs out, blocks out all the stars. You don't see a thing. Radio astronomy, that doesn't matter. It's completely it's able to observe. Yes, you can't look close to the sun. You know, if you're trying to point real close to the sun, the sun does emit radio waves and will cause problems. So you stay a certain, you know, looking at the sun there, you stay a certain way away from it. But to look over here, sun's there, over here, over here, over here, you know, elsewhere, is no problem. So you can observe 24 hours a day. You can look at objects all day, all night. You can also look through clouds, right? Good thing if you didn't have, if, if the radio waves didn't travel through clouds, then you wouldn't have much in the way of satellite dish TV, right? Every time it not, not only a thunderstorm, big thunderstorm might just disrupt your, your TV, but so if a cloud passed over, all of a sudden your TV went out every time, you know, cable would have a much easier time at it because there'd be a big difference. It wouldn't be just that big electrical storm that throws it off, it would actually be any time. So you can observe through clouds, you can observe through rain, you can observe through snow. It, the key is you cannot observe through like a thunderstorm. 
An electrical discharge of a thunderstorm will produce interference in the radio communication. So pretty much they can observe 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. The only time they're going to be shut down is if there is a major electrical storm. But light rain doesn't affect it. Snow doesn't affect it. And you can, you can, you can observe constantly. The other thing that you get is that you're observing at a completely different wavelength. So you're learning a whole new thing about this, about this object. So here's an example here. This is actually a combination picture. This picture has a visible light picture and a radio image of the same object. Boy, they don't look anything alike. This is a galaxy. So here's this galaxy. You have some object here. Very unusual galaxy. This is called Centaurus A and actually was found as a radio source. Very big dark dust band going across it. Now when we look at galaxies, this overall is an elliptical galaxy. So when we look at galaxies a little bit later, dust band doesn't exist in an elliptical galaxy. So this is a very unusual galaxy in the first place. But to the same scale, there's what we see visible light. That's if you point a regular optical telescope to it. If we point a radio telescope at it, we see this. We see a lobe here, we see a jet, and a lobe up here. Completely different information. We're looking at different parts of the galaxy to be able, and helping us to be able to understand it. If all we could look at was optical, we're missing a lot of information that can tell us maybe what's going on deep down in this core. Because all we see is this and this. If all you could look at was radio, you'd have something interesting going on, but you wouldn't have perhaps some of the underlying cause. So being able to look at objects at different wavelengths is very important. And radio astronomy is the first one that was added beyond optical. So optical existed forever, and radio was the first new part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we were able to observe. Now, mentioned interferometry briefly before. Interferometry was combining those signals from telescopes. So what astronomers do is there's actually an array of telescopes, one that they've set up here. This is out in the desert of southern New Mexico and is a set of 27 radio telescopes. Not very big, they're about 25, 20, 25 meters across. So they're bigger than an optical telescope, but they're not the tremendous gigantic ones. They're just a whole bunch of little ones. But they can all work in tandem. So you can observe the same object with each of these 27 telescopes and combine it together. And you get the same resolution. The way the resolution works is it looks at the two most widely separated dishes. So if one's way down there and the other is a kilometer off in this direction, it combines the signals and you've all of a sudden got your resolution as though you had a kilometer wide radio telescope or bigger. These are actually movable. You see the bottom picture there shows the railroad tracks. So they can actually be moved onto the railroad tracks, very slowly moved. You know, maybe a little faster than the Mars rover. Still not a whole lot. You're going to be talking miles per hour and not as in 20 or 30 miles per hour. You're talking one mile per hour maybe, two. You're moving them very, very slowly. You still don't want to tip them over. You know, that's still equipment that you're going to be damaging. But they could be moved so you could actually separate them out. And there's three different, or four, four configurations that it has. You can have a real compact one, which is shown here. And you can also stretch them out in the distance there. So instead of getting just you know, one kilometer between them, you can get 
you know, 10 kilometers between the furthest spread out ones. So that helps us get high resolution in radio astronomy because the wavelength hasn't changed. But now instead of going only up to 300 meters, we're going to kilometers in size. So now, and in fact this was designed, the VLA, very large array of telescopes, was designed to match pretty much the optical telescopes of the time. That it could match the resolution that the optical telescopes got so there could be easier comparisons. It's hard to compare something when the optical astronomer says, what's going on right there? You know, I see something interesting in this galaxy. And the radio astronomer says, there's a source somewhere out here. You, know, you can't combine the two. Is it, is it that source or is it something that's way off that's just still in the same, resol- same area of resolution? So combining these gives us a resolution depending on this largest separation between the dishes. So not the closest one, not the average, but the furthest apart that they are gives you the, gives you the resolution that that telescope will have. Now sort of an idea how interferometry works is it's looking at how the waves change from different areas. Remember we looked at, we looked at how waves combine and they can add together or they can s- subtract. How that works for each different telescope, so whether they're, you know, here they're coming in steps, so the peaks are adding to the peaks, and you're getting a more intense wave at this one from different parts of the source. Here they're out of step and they're subtracting. If you keep track of that phase information, how, how out of phase or in phase they are, how do they line up from different parts of the, from the different radio waves, then you can put that information back together put it through a computer and it can actually go and calculate and give you the image based on that, on that information. So based on the resolution that you're able. So you get the resolution, you know, as far apart as you can possibly put those telescopes will give you the best resolution, give you the highest resolution. So we can get things that actually match up pretty well. Now I gave you one example there that was, you know, kind of extreme where you had a very unusual galaxy and Optical image looked nothing like the radio image. Well here with the VLA, on the left is a radio image. Again, all you're looking at is the intensity, how much radio wave radiation is coming from each point in the sky in that area. Exactly the same way we do with optical, right? Where is the most visible light coming from? Here, there's more here, more here, less here. And you can see that they match up pretty well in this case. The resolution is about the same. You're seeing about the same amount of detail. So using this, we can actually get that resolving power. We can take into account the fact that this diameter has to be so much bigger. You can't build a radio telescope that's 10 kilometers across. You know, 300 meters is pretty darn big. Try to do one that's 10 kilometers across. It's not something that you could do. But we can build them even bigger now. Once we start this, do I go, oops, wait a second. I didn't give it there, okay. Once you start this, there are other ways to do it. And I gave you the, I mentioned the VLA. I showed you a picture, which is the very large array. Very creative names, right? Very large array of radio telescopes. That's those 27 that we looked at. There's also VLBA, which is a very long baseline array. And this, this expands on it. This is, in, this is in New Mexico. So, 
relatively small. The VLBA is a set of, I think it's 20 telescopes. This is spread across the US. So you're not limited by where you are. You, as long as you can get the radio telescopes observing the same object, as long as it's above the horizon for each of those object, each of those telescopes, you can observe it. And it doesn't matter if one telescope is over outside of Boston and one's over outside of San Francisco and one's down in Texas and one's up in Minnesota, wherever they are. You can put all those signals together and now all of a sudden instead of a tel- talking tens of kilometers, you're talking thousands of kilometers across the entire United States. So you've got, you're getting even better resolution. You're getting much, much more detail. Radio telescopes have the added advantage that the atmosphere doesn't mess them up. We talked about seeing, right? Seeing blurs, the, seeing blurs the star images, spreads them out and kind of ruins your resolving power even if you have a real big telescope. That doesn't happen in radio astronomy either. The radio waves pretty much come straight through. They don't get, you don't get twinkling of radio sources the way you do with, vis- with visible sources. So here you can spread it across the US. And then finally, you can see what the ne- what's coming next, right? What do you go next? You go across the world. Very long baseline interferometry, VLBI. So you can actually have an object at one side of the Earth and an object at the other, or a telescope at one side of the Earth and at the other side of the Earth. You know, have one in the US and one in Australia and that are observing the same object. Combine the signals. Now, you can, you're, now you're only limited by the size of the Earth. How big is the Earth? Well, however many kilometers across, you've now got a radio telescope that big. Then you're stuck. You can't go a whole lot bigger than that, right? Put a radio telescope up in orbit. Well, yeah, you can add a few hundred miles, but when you're already talking about tens of thousands of, mi- thousands of miles across the Earth, what's adding a couple hundred? It doesn't make a big difference. The next big jump would be, could you put one on the moon? Could you go 384,000 kilometers away, put a telescope up on the moon that could observe? Observe it with that telescope, observe it, and now all of a sudden you've got a baseline as the distance between the Earth and the moon. Now, interferometry, before we go off into the other ones, it's being done. They're, they're, they're much improved it with visible light. It, took a lo- it was a lot harder because of the shorter wavelengths and the accuracy and precision involved was much, much harder at optical wavelengths. It's being worked on on that and is getting much better. It's actually able to do it now with optical light. Primarily, again, for the first 50 years or so, it was all radio. That was all that was done. But now they're actually able to do it with visible light, which would be a big improvement if you can look at telescopes. You know, you can all of a sudden get telescopes, visible telescopes that are, you know, meters apart, tens of meters, hundreds of meters apart, and be able to combine them together. Don't have the technology to do them across the country or across the world yet, but we're work, they're working up towards that. All right, and we're going to skim through some of the other astronomies here. Um, we looked at, again, primarily, primarily visible was the biggest. Radio is the next oldest one. Then we look at some of the other wavelengths. Infrared is shorter wavelength. Here's the visible light image of a star cluster that's just forming. On the right-hand side is an infrared image of exactly the same star cluster. Infrared is very good at looking through the dust. So dust here that blocks and obscures our view of those stars. You know, they're here. Can you see them down there? They're all they're blocked out, but they're there. Whereas when you look in the infrared, you can actually see deep into it. Again, something we could not have done 
100 years ago. We couldn't look down into this star cluster and been able to study it. So now we can look at it and we can see, okay, we can't see it in the optical. One of the problems with optical light is it's very sensitive to dust and gets blocked out very easily. But we can see it in the infrared. There's all those stars. We are able to better study them. The nice thing is with infrared is that most of the rest hasn't changed. You, know, you do it exactly the same way. You use uh, mirrors, mirrors or lenses to focus the infrared light just like you focus visible light. So a telescope that is set up to observe visible can also observe in the infrared. The Hubble Space Telescope can look in the infrared, can look in the visible. The difficulty is you can't do that with every telescope just because if you're not close enough to the object. If you're not close enough to, if you're not, try that again. You can't do it with every telescope if you're too close to the surface of the Earth where it starts to get wet and the infrared radiation is absorbed. Then you're not going to be able to see anything with it. Infrared telescopes, you can put them in balloons. You've got to get above the atmosphere. You have to get above the water in the atmosphere is what is absorbing all of our infrared light. So you can use satellites. You can use balloons. You can use high-flying airplanes. Anything that gets you up high in the atmosphere and above most of the water in the atmosphere, you can observe with infrared. You can observe, use that to observe in the infrared. Let me go back one. The other thing you have to do that's difficult is that you have to also if you're sending things up in a balloon or in a spacecraft or having it or, or in a balloon or an airplane or having it here on Earth, is you have to keep your detector really, really cold. Okay? Doesn't matter with the optical light because an optical object, I mean on, on those CCDs, they don't emit visible light. But if you heat them up, if they have a certain temperature associated with them and their room temperature, what are they emitting? They're emitting all sorts of infrared radiation. You know, everything in this room is emitting some infrared radiation. So your detector, when you fly it up there, has to be kept extremely cold to minimize how much infrared radiation it's emitting. It would be like your CCD glowing like a light bulb and trying to take a picture with it. You wouldn't get anything. It would be overwhelmed by the light it's producing itself. Well, in infrared, you get the same thing just because it has a temperature. If things are at you know, a couple hundred degrees Kelvin, which is room temperature, you're not going to be able to, they're going to emit so much infrared radiation that they're not going to be useful as detectors. So you use liquid nitrogen to keep them very cold in order to make your observations. Here's some examples of looking at in ultraviolet part of the spectrum. Ultraviolet, you can use some similar <coughs> telescopes, but not quite completely. Ultraviolet is very good. Um, you can observe it with like a reflecting telescope. So Hubble Space Telescope could do this, could observe in the ultraviolet. A refracting telescope couldn't. Refracting telescope, the light passes through the glass and ultraviolet radiation will get absorbed by the glass. So ultraviolet, you could not use a refracting telescope of any kind because it would get completely blocked out. It also does not get through the atmosphere very well. So most of the ultraviolet work has to be done from satellites out in space. You have to put the satellite out in space to observe the ultraviolet, get up above the entire Earth's atmosphere, not just part of it as you did with the infrared. When you look at that, you see some different parts of the objects, like there's a spiral galaxy here. So it doesn't look that different, but you may notice perhaps there's a little less at the center and a little bit more in the outside. You're seeing all of the hot young stars that emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation. 
you're seeing the very energetic remains of a star that exploded. So very high energy objects emit infrared or emit ultraviolet radiation. X-rays, now they get harder. You know, Hubble Space Telescope can look in the visible, can look in some of the infrared and some of the ultraviolet. Even though it's above the Earth's atmosphere and it can see all the X-rays and gamma rays it wants, it can't detect them. A mirror like that will not work. A regular mirror will not focus X-rays. They're too high energy. Now X-rays you can focus and there are telescopes that have been designed that are out in space that actually have mirrors that are like this and sort of cylinders that slowly focus things down. You have one set here, another set where the X-rays come in at a very glancing angle. So they just barely, instead of, instead of bouncing here and bouncing back down, which an X-ray wouldn't do, it would just immediately be absorbed, you kind of skip it off the surface and bring it to the next one and skip it off the surface there and eventually bring it to a focus. So there are ways to focus the X-rays and actually get an image. But it's completely different. You need a completely different telescope design than you use for uh, visible light. So Hubble Space Telescope, yeah, it can see X-rays. They're there. They're coming in. But it has no way to focus them or any way to detect them. So even if you could put an X-ray detector up on it, it would have no way to collect them and focus them. You need a completely different redesign of the mirror system in order to do that. Here's an example, again, another supernova remnant. This is Cassiopeia A. So supernova that exploded a few hundred years ago. And this is the remnant of it. And again, very, very bright in X-ray. Supernova was, is an extremely energetic explosion of a star tearing itself apart. And what you're seeing is what's left over, the material from the outer layers of that star that has expanded out into space. Extremely high temperatures. Anything very hot, very energetic will emit a lot of X-rays. And that's one example of one here. And again, we'll see more as we go through the class. Gamma rays. Well, I showed you one way to focus X-rays. You could do that. Gamma rays, you can't focus. They're too high energy. Even glancing them off is not, is not enough. You can see sort of that there's a source there. But you notice that they're very blurry. Any gamma ray images are very blurry. There's no way to get to focus them and bring them to a focus. They're much too high energy. So you can get an idea that, yes, there's a, a source there, but you're not going to be able to finally resolve it in any, with any technology that we have. There's no way that we have, right now at least, to be able to focus a gamma ray, focus energy, energy from gamma rays. Now, these are one, two, three, five images of the same object actually our galaxy. So this is the Milky Way galaxy as seen in five different wavelengths. And you can see there's, there's some similarities, some very big differences. You have radio and infrared on the top. You have visible light. right? That's what we're used to seeing images of. There's the visible light of the Milky Way stretching across. And then you have higher energy, X-rays and gamma rays. The whole idea is that, you know, for for thousands of years, we were confined to this. This is all we knew about our galaxy was what we could see in this part of the spectrum. Now we can look at it in radio waves. Yeah, it's condensed to the disk similarly, but not quite the same. It doesn't show quite the same pattern, so we learn a little bit more about things that way. The infrared is a little bit different. X-rays, quite different. And then gamma rays are focused right down on here, but there's also sources that come, from all, come all over the place. So we learn a lot more 
about an object by being able to study it instead of just one wavelength, instead of just looking at this galaxy, our galaxy, in visible light. We can learn a lot more about it by studying it in infrared. You know, what are these other objects up there? And gamma rays, why is it so focused? At what is, where is the energy coming from? What are the sources of the gamma radiation that's coming from it? So we can learn a lot more about an object by studying it in these different wavelengths. Alright, so refracting telescopes, sort of summarize here. We had refracting and reflecting telescopes. Refracting telescopes use a lens. Refracting, reflecting, I'll try to speak properly today. Reflecting telescopes make images with the mirror. All the modern telescopes for a number of reasons are reflectors. The last um, refracting telescope, that professional one that was put together was in the late 1800s, 1896, 1897. Very late part, that was the last one and that one was about a meter across. They're hard to build, hard to build anything that big, keep a, something a meter, a piece of glass that you can't support from behind, that has to be perfect throughout, is very hard to build. So there are some good reasons that modern telescopes are all refractors. I talked to you about CCDs and how we use them to collect the data. I mentioned a little bit about the earlier types, the um, photographic plates that were used, so not directly film, but actually a photographic um, emulsion on a piece of glass that was stored. How do we examine the data? Well, we can make a picture, right? That's a lot of what we see as pictures. We look at some spectra, split it up into its light source. We can measure the brightness, how, how much intensity is coming from an object. Why do we want bigger telescopes? Well, first of all, the big thing is that they gather much more light. So the bigger the telescope you have, the more light you're able to gather. You're going to be able to see fainter objects that just they're there, but a small telescope just doesn't pick up enough light to be able to see them. The larger telescopes also give you a better resolution. So, bigger telescope, resolving power, you get a telescope much bigger, the resolving power gets smaller, meaning that you're seeing things that are closer together. You're seeing much more fine detail. Optical telescopes for the resolution is limited by the atmosphere. So the atmosphere smears out the optical light and blurs it and sort of doesn't help us get our ideal resolution, the resolution that we want to get. For radio or space-based telescopes, this works out perfectly. So this will tell you the exact resolution. If you're up above the atmosphere, if you're using a radio telescope, that'll tell you exactly what resolving power you're going to get. How do we minimize that? We use things like active optics. We adjust the shapes of the mirror to minimize them. So we can actually take into account as the telescope turns that gravity is distorting its shape. Computer control can instantly change that and keep adjust, pull, push and pull where it needs to to adjust the shape of the telescope mirror to keep it and sort of eliminate some of these optical effects that were occurring. Radio telescopes, again, you need a big telescope to get any kind of resolution on it. Most radio telescopes don't give you a very strong very intense uh, measure of resolution. Just because even though they're so big, even when you talk about things that are meters across, the wavelengths are so much larger. To get around that, radio astronomers use interferometry. Put different telescopes together. Whether in the VLA, where they're you know, kilometers across, very long baseline across the United States, or the VLBI, which is across the world. To get much higher resolution than would otherwise be attainable. 
And then finally, I kind of summarized through the others pretty quickly today. Infrared and ultraviolet telescopes really aren't all that different than, different than optical telescopes. Very similar. They use the same types of mirrors. Infrared could use the same type of lenses. Um, infrared can be on Earth-based if you're high enough up above the water vapor in the atmosphere. Ultraviolet cannot. To really observe in the ultraviolet, you've got to be up above the atmosphere. As you do for x-rays, as you do for gamma rays. Those all would have to be up in space in order to see them. Good thing, right? We don't want to get bombarded by x-rays and gamma rays here on Earth. Astronomers would love it, right? Be able to detect gamma rays here without having to launch a satellite. But it wouldn't be pleasant for, for everybody else. X-rays we can focus. Gamma rays cannot be, cannot be focused. We can detect them, but you can't actually make a nice image of a galaxy in gamma rays. You can just detect the general direction that they're coming from. So that sort of finishes up there. And that really goes through our introduction part that covers a little bit on the history and motion and how everything worked there. What we do over, what we're going to do over the rest of the semester, first of all, I'm going to start today very briefly and go over the solar system. And again, this is chapters four through eight. And don't try to read them all. What I'm putting up on here is what I'm interested in having you know. So you don't have to read those. You can skim through these, print out the slides. Those are the parts that I'm you know, interested in you following along with and that I'm going to be testing you on. I'm not going to test you on, so there's a, you'll see there's whole big sections that are skipped and those ones are things I won't even be testing you on. If it's not information I give you here, it's not something you'll have to worry about for that. So we're going to start here and again I'm going to go through the beginning of this as we try to get through these slides relatively quickly. This is not the emphasis of the course once we get through this. Then we're going to get into the sun and then use that as a jumping point out to the other, to the stars and galaxies. So what do we have in the solar system? Um, a long time, depends on when you, when you think about it. A long time ago, the moon, right? You can see the moon easily. We can see the stars. We saw five planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Comets were known, meteors were known. That's about it. So that, was what, that was what the solar system consisted of. That's what the universe consisted of at the time. Those are what you could see. Almost everything there is in the solar system except for the stars. You know, the stars are now known to be much further away. That really wasn't known at the time. And if you go back thousands of years, there's really no difference between talking about the solar system or talking about the universe. It was all the same thing. You know, there was no differentiation between the stars and the planets. They all looked like they were in the same spot or same, same distances. Now, that's a little outdated. We got more than 100 and we're pushing 200 moons, I think, now. So one star, which was not known about, right? We knew the sun was there, but we didn't know about that it was a star. We've got eight planets. We had five. We added Uranus and Neptune and got to eight. It's pretty good. We added one more too, right? And I'm not counting about talking about Pluto, but we added Earth. Earth was not considered, would not have been considered a planet early on. So we had five planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Those have been known since ancient times. We found Uranus and Neptune, and Earth has become a planet. We didn't realize it was a planet. We didn't know anything about asteroids a long time ago. Certainly comets were known. Meteoroids, we knew meteors. We didn't know meteoroids. Meteoroids are what the meteor was when it was out in space. Dwarf planets, there, there's Pluto. Kuiper belt objects, all the objects out here, the asteroid belt objects in here, were all things that were not known. 
So the solar system has greatly expanded very recently. It wasn't all that long ago. I mean, when was the first planet? Uranus was discovered in the late 1700s. So Uranus has been known about as long as the U.S. has been a country. You know, roughly the same time frame. Before that, it was only those certain number of planets. So we've discovered a lot more. We've added a lot more objects to it since then. Now we split them up into two groups. The planets split into two groups. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars are one group. Those are the terrestrial planets or Earth-like planets. And then there are the Jovian planets or Jupiter-like planets. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And from the table here, which is table 4-2 in your textbook, show that there are, common, there are properties that each of these have in common. So terrestrial planets are close to the sun. Their orbits are close together. It doesn't take that long to travel to Mars or to travel to Mercury. You can do that, it can be done relatively quickly. They're small in terms of size and mass. They're rocky. They got a solid surface. We can go land on it. We can land on Mercury. We haven't landed on Mercury yet, but we could. We've landed on Mars. We're on Earth right now, I hope. Um, we've, can, we've landed on Venus. U.S. hasn't, but the Russians have landed probes on Venus, so the only one we haven't landed on is Mercury. You can sort of include the Moon in there too. The Moon fits a lot of those properties, except that it doesn't orbit the Sun. But they do have a solid surface. They have a high density, so density similar materials are similar to what we see on the Earth. They rotate relatively slow. Earth takes 24 hours to spin once. Mars is just about the same. Mercury and Venus take a lot, a lot longer. Mercury takes, let's see, Mercury takes 50, <coughs> 58 days, I believe, to spin on its axis once. Venus takes over 200. So they all rotate very slowly. When you look at the Jovian planets, Jupiter rotates in less than 10 hours. So much bigger planet, but it's whipping around there. They rotate very quickly. So you've got you know, 10 hours, 10 hours for these two, and maybe 13, 14 hours for the others. They're both rotating you know, much faster than the Earth. Weaker magnetic fields, no rings, only a few moons. Among those four planets, there's three moons, right? Ours and Mars has two little tiny moons. But there were 166 according to the slide. So that's three, that leaves 163 for those other four planets. So the Jovian planets, lots of moons, lots of rings. Stronger magnetic fields, faster rotation, lower density, sort of the opposite. They're almost all the opposite things, right? They're very big, they're very far away from the sun, they have very widely spaced orbits. So, in order to go from Jupiter to Saturn is much, many times further than the difference between the sun and the Earth. Now, some of the other objects that we see, and again, you'll notice if you go through, I'm skipping big chunks of the, of the book here. Comets. One of the other objects that we're seeing here have a nucleus, so a central nucleus here. Very icy, almost a big uh, dirty snowball as it's called. When that gets close to the sun, it gets heat, uh, heated up and a lot of the material evaporates and gets pushed back. So it gets a little head here, big envelope around it, and then a tail of material that's <coughs> pushed away by the sun. That's a sketch of it. Here's an actual photograph, a visible light photograph of a comet. The nucleus you can't see. It's buried deep down inside there, all the material around it, and then the tail being pushed back from the sun. So a comet, did I do this? Yeah. So a comet, as it travels, 
Doesn't always have its tail running behind it, you know, like a dog would. The tail's always going to be behind the dog, unless the dog's going backwards. Well, the comet is different. When the comet comes in, as it comes in towards the sun, the tail's being pushed away, right? So the tail is behind the comet. As it comes around and goes back out, it's still the sunlight pushing the tail away, so now the tail, the tail follows coming in, the tail actually leads going out. So the tail is leaving the sun first. It comes in last and it leaves first. So no matter where you are in the orbit of the comet, the tail always points directly away from the sun. Now there's two tails there. There's what we call an ion tail, which is those uh, charged particles. So electrons, protons, little charged particles. They get pushed very easily away and it goes straight away from the sun. There's also some dustier particles, bigger particles, that are included in the comet. They also get pushed straight away from the sun, but they lag behind in the orbit. So you see how they're sort of curved away here, how there's one tail that goes straight out, the other one lags behind. So in this case, I did it the wrong way the last time, but the comet is actually going this way. And the tail's always pointing away. This one just lags behind it a little bit in its orbit because they're a little bit heavier particles. So I'm going to go ahead and finish up there. I'll come back and do comets again briefly. But again, I'm just kind of giving you a very brief overview of the solar system. And we'll work that through and we'll go through again very briefly on the rest of the planets on Wednesday and Friday. So, questions? All right, otherwise, I say the quiz is up. Don't forget the quiz, which is available through the end of the day.